church is a serving people. A serving people. And when I say serving, I don't just mean servers, like you'd see a server at a restaurant or something, but rather the church is a servant people. A serving people who act as servants in the world and servants to God. Servants uh, to the world because of what Jesus, the ultimate servant, did for us. And so it's with that spirit that we come to Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. Don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But we're going to bite off two giant chapters of Acts this morning um, that deal primarily with uh, the church that has, that has encountered a new problem. Uh, and then one particular man out of a group of seven that are appointed, Stephen, uh, he, he just stands up in extraordinary faith and, uh, and shows the way for the early church. And so that's what chapter seven is predominantly about. But as we begin, let me open us up in prayer again that the Lord would speak to us. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you would speak your words this morning, uh, that you would teach each of us uniquely uh, into our own life circumstances. We pray that the words of Scripture would come alive to us and that we might see relevance and importance in our own life today and in this church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, the church is a servant people, um, but I did a quick Google search this week because that's what 32-year-olds do. We Google things. And so I Googled two things this week. Number one, I Googled the word church. And number two, I Googled the word volunteer. And I wanted to see what the difference was in terms of what popped up by way of news items when I Googled those two words. And you can imagine probably what was found. First, when I Googled the word church, I, I looked at the first three or four headlines and they were predominantly negative. So one was about two Catholic church buildings that were burned to the ground this week by a fire in Canada, which was sad. Uh, one, one article says that the American church needs to reckon with its legacy of indigenous boarding schools. Uh, another article, various articles, because this is Pride Month, we're talking about the problem that the church has had in caring for the LGBTQ plus community. And for those of us in Salem, certainly we maybe feel that. And the fourth one was talking about the decreasing value of the church in general in the West. How, for the first time, church membership has dropped below 50% of Americans. Um, so predominantly negative or kind of critical things about the church. And then I looked up the word volunteer, and it was exclusively positive. So uh, there was an article about, uh, the, the, the title was, The 99-Year-Old Charity Shop Volunteer Refusing to Slow Down. 99 years old and still volunteering at this charity shop. Second one was from the Detroit Jewish News. It says, Heroes at Your Doorstep. Hatzalah's volunteer EMTs can arrive to save lives in less than two minutes. And then the third one was how an Austin, Texas volunteer group connected a kidney transplant patient with a perfect match donor. Here's the point. Our world, by and large, across the board, loves the idea of service and volunteering and caring for the weak and extending yourself to, to those that are in need. That is a, an overwhelmingly positive thing. 
The church, however, there seems to be a disconnect in the modern world of the usefulness of the church or the relevance of the church. And I think we feel that. I feel that. Um, And so the point of this, this morning's sermon is to answer the question, what can the church offer the world today that is of any practical use to the modern world? What can the church offer the world today? Because you wouldn't be here if you didn't think there was a positive answer to that question. Or if you're listening to this weeks from now, because you saw the, the, the sermon title, or if you're watching it from home today, uh, maybe you're looking for a good answer. Maybe you're trying to give church a try again after many years of being away. And maybe this question is one you've asked. Here's a quote from G.K. Chesterton, who's a, a, a wonderful writer from years ago. I think this this quote gets at it pretty well about the purpose of the church in connection to the modern world. He says, quote, we do not really want a religion that is right where we are right. We want what we want is a religion that is right where we are wrong. And then he says this. We do not want, as the newspapers say, a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. And so how does the church find its connection, especially with this idea of serving today? Because you and I could go out today as individuals and go serve at a food bank or with the United Way or with the Salvation Army and do many wonderful things. And I encourage that. But how does the church serve uniquely in a way that it actually doesn't move with the world, but that it actually moves the world? Because we believe as a church that the church can move the world towards ultimate hope and restoration through the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming Jesus as the way. And so again, if you've been with us and you've been learning about Acts, we've been using this phrase, God is on the move. God is on the move. And in the book of Acts, we've been seeing that he's pushing his church forward in this powerful way through his Holy Spirit uh, to, to show the world a new way, a new and powerful way to find purpose and hope in the world. And so again, the church does not just serve. The church is a servant people. And so this morning in Acts 6, we're going to get a, a, just a great glimpse into that. And so I'm going to give you two big, two big waves of how we're going to look at this. The first wave is looking at the posture of the church. And the second wave is looking at the passion of the church. And so as we ask the question, what what is it that separates the church in the world uniquely? Um, Well, I'm going to use these these two P words. The first is the posture of how the church serves. And the second is the passion with which the church serves or the passion of how the church serves. So first, let's look at the church's primary posture. The church has got a bad rap through the years of being a a loud, boisterous, proclaiming, uh, you're going to hell type of people. At least that's one faction of the church. And it's turned off a whole generation of people. A lot of people in my generation. I'm thinking of friends of mine that have a hard time with the church because all they hear is the loud, you're doing wrong, you're terrible, you're going to go to hell unless something. And again, that's part of gospel proclamation. You see Stephen at the end of chapter 7 kind of going down that route, and it's used by God in powerful ways. However, for the church to make a difference in the world today, the posture of the church has to be one of humble servanthood. 
humble, caring, compassionate, mercy-filled service to the world that's meeting real needs with the proclaimed gospel of Jesus. And so the, the church exists to serve the needs of the world because of Jesus. You think of Jesus said, I came not to be served, but, or yeah, I, I came to serve, not to be served. And it says he took on the very form of a servant, emptying himself of his, of his godness to become a human that cared deeply for the world and taking on what, what we were. Because the world is broken and is in great need, that's why the church is to serve. The, the needs of the world are just overwhelmingly immense. I mean, I, I, I could just spend the next 30 minutes just listening, list, listing off words of needs that the world has. I'll, I'll take 10 seconds. Give me 10 seconds to give you just some of the biggest needs in the world. Poverty, hunger, division, death, racism, tribalism, fear, exploitation, slavery, I think that was five seconds. Let's take another five seconds just to let that sink in for a second. The needs of the world are immense. And the whole world is trying to figure this out together. How do we end slavery? How do we end hunger? How do we end poverty? How do we end division? These, these are the things that pop up on the news. And the local church exists to serve the needs of its local community. And if churches across the world, so like the Zodokar people in Russia, if that church owned their city and served that city well, and if the church in Salem here owned our city well and cared for the needs of our community, and if the church in Hamilton did that, and if the church in Nashville, New Hampshire did that, if we all did that uniquely in our own ways, the world would be amazingly cared for and covered by the Holy Spirit and by the care of Jesus. The church is a servant people and is to care for widows and orphans as we prayed for. The least of these, as Matthew 25 says, and certainly more. And the church has done this in extraordinary ways throughout history. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, uh, has written a whole article and series of articles talking about how the early church uh, won favor in the Roman Empire uniquely by how they served the outcast and the marginalized in the Roman Empire. Women the oppressed, the poor, the lepers, all those kinds of people, no one was caring for them. They just said, you're fine to be on the fringes of society. But the early church, motivated by the Holy Spirit, pressed into them and cared for them. And that won them an amazing uh, number of converts in favor in the early days. And so what do we see about in Acts chapter 6? I hope you have your Bible open or at least have the, the little insert open that goes to the first 15 verses. Uh, looking at verse 1 of chapter 6, we see how the early church begins to serve and have this posture of servanthood in their context. In Acts chapter 6 verse 1, um, you see that the, the church gives space for a need. A unique and new need arises in Jerusalem. And it, it arrives by way of complaint. And so this, this begins with a complaint or a grumbling or a murmuring or these rumors. This kind of side group of people starts complaining uh, that, that their people, that their widows are being neglected. So it says here that uh, there's a complaint by the Hellenists that arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here's what's going on. Uh, you remember the, the last couple of weeks, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 5, um, 
there's these beautiful passages where it says that the church had all things in common and they generously shared all their, all their proceeds and they laid them at the apostles' feet so that they could care for the needs of the community. Remember those two passages? And what they've been doing is they've been caring for people like the widows. Well, what happened here is the Hellenists, who are the Greek-speaking Jews, they were mad because their widows were being neglected in this distribution. And it doesn't say why. Maybe it was the language barrier. Maybe they just had a, a larger group of people that, that they, just, they were on the outside. Maybe there was a cultural barrier. Maybe it just was an accident. Whatever the case, they wanted to make sure that their voice was heard. And they started complaining and saying, hey, listen, our widows are being neglected. This isn't fair. And so they're absolutely right. They're right to complain because the church said we are to care for the widows in our midst. This is why the church exists. And so those who are being neglected or overlooked, as the word means, uh, have, have, a, have a beef here. And they're, they're correct to be upset. So I just want to pause here for a second because sometimes when you're in ministry, I know some of you, uh, you guys have been in ministry, whether as lay leaders or those who have been missionaries or serving. Uh, one of the common themes is in ministry is that you hear a lot of complaints things that go wrong in your ministry. You, 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 do, you try to do as much good as you can and work hard, but sure enough, you can't do everything perfectly, so you hear complaints. And it's pretty common in each of us that when you hear a complaint against you, to get a little defensive, to get a little upset. It's like, haven't you seen all the other things that I've been doing? Like, we're doing the best we can. Like, can you, can you just give us a little bit of time, give us a little bit of patience, give us a little bit of grace? And it's natural to get a little defensive. Well, why, don't, why aren't you helping with that? <laughs> I'm just, I'm voicing, I'm confessing my sins to you here. Uh, so this, but, that, but I think this is a common thread in each of us, is, is when you hear a complaint against you, you your, your first instinct probably is to get a little defensive. And what I love here about this text is you don't get the hint of that from the early church, do you? So verse 1, they get this complaint. Verse number 2, they're immediately sprung into action. The 12 apostles, the 12 leaders, they, they come around and they instantly put together an action plan. They instantly put it together and they say, we're going to care for this need. We're going to make this thing work. We're going to listen to the complaint and we're going to make sure the whole church is cared for. And that we're going to make sure that we are a serving people. We recognize that we have a, a limit here and we're going to go out of our way. Our posture is going to be one of humility to recognize that we can't, we can't do it all. And so the second thing was that they listened to the complaints. And then the third thing was that they recognized their limits and their opportunities. So look at verses 3 and 4. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 2, it says that the the 12 apostles, it says it's not really right for us to give up our preaching or to give up our praying ministry. So we're going to delegate this ministry. And folks, this is... This is such a critical thing here for the life of the church. And as I've been here for six months, I've just seen this in beautiful ways already in the church here of how I'm a pastor and I can't do it all. And you all know that. And you all have been stepping in and helping me do this ministry in extraordinary ways because it's not about the pastor. It's not just about the deacons. It's about the whole church. And so... It's a beautiful picture here of, of what the church is meant to be like, sharing the role of serving together. So again, the whole church is to serve, 
But there's some that are called out to serve particular needs in times of great need or crisis or to be on call to be the go-to servants. And what we see here is that the seven people that are called out really become the first vision of deacons or deaconesses in the church. This is the first glimpse of it. And so it's not an accident that I had Pam read the scripture today because she is one of our deaconesses in this church. And so we prayed for, for Fran and for Pam and for Laura today, our deaconesses, because they are doing similar things to what these seven men were doing in this early passage in the early church as well. The church can't do the, the church serves together, but the whole church can't be uh, on top of each other doing these particular uh, intense needs of serving. So they called out seven people and they said, hey, you seven, and they list them by name here. Some of them you recognize, Stephen and Philip are the most prominent ones. But they list them by name and they said, can you take care of this particular need and serve the tables, serve the widows, serve the needs. So the fourth thing here is that the church adjusted itself to meet the need most effectively. And it says here that they needed to be people uh, who were of good repute. That word, interestingly, let me take you back a couple of chapters or a couple of sermons ago. I think it was the second sermon that we preached from the book of Acts a couple of weeks ago. I preached a sermon called The Church Organized for a Purpose. It's from Acts chapter 1. And it was talking about how the early church, they voted to take on on one more apostle to fill the place of Judas. And they began to organize themselves as a church. And do you remember what the the purpose of them being organized was for? It's for the purpose of witnessing for the purpose of bearing witness to the name in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this word here in the ESV, uh, it says, men of good repute. That word, good repute, actually is this, this root word of martyr. It's that same word for witness that was used in Acts chapter 1. These are people who are to bear witness by being of good repute. They are to, to live their lives selflessly and sacrificially so that even if martyrdom comes, they would be found faithful. And we're going to see that at the end of chapter 7, at the end of this sermon. So that's the first thing we're to be. The second thing they're to be is full of the Holy Spirit, which means these are true believers in Jesus. They're to be full of wisdom. They're to be those who who act out the, the, the needs of the community with all wisdom. They see a need and they respond to it well. So again, think of us in this church here. Whenever a need arises, a particular need in our city, in our church, how do we respond? Who do we look to? Oftentimes we look to our deaconess. And we look to our, our pastors. And we look to, our, our, the, our, to the people who are of good repute who can take on that burden. And so these seven men were chosen. It is, it is important to note that these are seven men early on in this chapter. So uh, in, in the early Jerusalem church, the first deacons were men. However, and this is a sermon for another day, in 1 Timothy 3, where the other deacons uh, passage is listed, the word there for deacons or deaconesses uh, can be taken to be women as well, which is why we are free to have women serve as deacons in our churches uh, across the world here. And that's our conviction in this church. And so the church prayed for them and they sent them out and they were deployed Uh, to serve the needs of the community. So the apostles laid their hands on them and they sent them out. 
And again, look, look at verse 7. It's just astounding here what happens. Again, a big need arises. They pray for them. They send them out. And in verse 7, it says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Multiplied greatly. I don't know if, if any of you guys are math people. Maybe, you're, I mean, math is kind of one of those natural dividers in life. No pun intended there with dividing. Uh, but you either love math or you hate it, really. But there's, in this passage, you see addition and multiplication. What does, what does it say here? It says the word of God increased, which is an interesting way to put that here. So what I'm doing here, proclaiming the word of God or, or giving the Bible to you, that's what you all do when you take the Bible and we do studies or we pass along the scriptures to each other. It says that continued to add up. It just, you, you see this kind of stacking. It's getting higher and higher. It's, it's getting more and more credibility in the community. And then you see multiplication. Individual disciples didn't just add on, but individuals would go out and share the gospel or share the word of God. And two or three people would accept that. And then those two or three people would pass it along. And then those two or three people would pass it along. And again, for you, for you math people out there, all of a sudden you're looking at exponential growth. You're looking at, at something that is uncontrollable. It's like, it's like a pyramid scheme in the best possible way, making disciples of all nations. And that's what the word of God does. And the most shocking thing here that happens, don't miss this, the end of verse 7. A great many of the priests became obedient to faith. Have you been keeping up with the priests for the last several chapters in this book? The priests have not been on the side of the disciples. They've been, they've been antagonizing them. They've been bringing them to court. They've been accusing them of doing bad things. And now it says a great many of them have come to faith. And became obedient. And the foundation of that was the church responding to a tangible need in the community. It's so important. We can come here on Sunday morning and preach. But if that preaching doesn't go out into the community and actually serve tangible needs, the widows, the orphans, the marginalized, the outcasts, then the church is not really going to be super effective. The foundation here is the Holy Spirit undergirding the church, giving them a platform to serve, and then exponential growth is happening. And it's done in this posture of humility, of listening to a need, of not responding defensively, of not, of not letting their sin overtake them, but responding with, well, of course we're going to serve that need. Of course we're going to respond because this is why we exist. This is what the church is here for. Let's do this. Let's, let's deploy ourselves. Let's delegate well. And let's be what we were called to be. Man, what, what a, can you imagine if, if all of our churches turned into that kind of spirit and had that kind of humility? We can, make, we can make an enormous spiritual impact. That's the posture of the church. Remember what the second P was that I was going to say? The passion. What's the passion of the church, though, that flows out of the posture? And the passion of the church, which, again, you can't preach 85 verses, verse by verse. Uh, it takes too long. But what you see with the rest of chapter 6 and then flowing through chapter 7 is the passion of the church is the story in which we are all enveloped. The story in which you and I are a continuation of. The story began at the beginning of time 
at the beginning of creation. And it has an end date when Jesus comes again and he makes all things right. And we find our place in the story. And Stephen, who's one of the early deacons here, remember, this is a serving ministry. You know, the apostles were going to be the ones taking the word of God out. They were going to be the ones teaching the Bible and praying. The, the serving ones were the deacons. But what you see here that I think is really interesting is that Stephen, because of his serving, finds a platform to proclaim. He doesn't just stay in the deacon lane. He uses his deacon standing as a way to build trust and to share the story with those with whom he's serving. So as we go to LifeBridge, as we go to Amira, um, we share the hope that is within us with joy as we serve. And so Stephen, it says he was, in verse 8, full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs. Those are the serving things that he's doing. But then he finds himself in these contentious conversations in the end of verse, at the end of chapter 6. Uh, and it says they kind of accuse him. And then look at the beginning of verse 7. They're accusing him of, bear, of bearing false witness. Remember I said the church is to bear positive witness. It says here that they're, they're accusing him of bearing false witness. And in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, the high priest turns to him and says, Stephen, are these things so? Which is the question that as a Christian, you're always dying for someone to ask you. Christian, is what you believe really true? Is what you believe really so Because that gives you the opportunity to share with honesty and with genuineness the hope that is within you. And so for the next 50 verses, Stephen shares the hope that is within him. And it's an amazing thing. From verses 2 to 53, 51 verses, he explains the Israelite story and he explains our story and how the church intersects with that story. So let me just summarize He goes from Abraham to the 12 tribes of Israel, to Joseph, to Egypt, through the story of Moses, who explains the burning bush. He talks about Aaron and the golden calf, Joshua, David, Solomon, and the building of the temple. And notice that if you read this through later, because we're not going to read it now, if you read this through later, he doesn't skip the bad parts. He includes the bad parts of the story of Israel and the story of God's people. The parts where they sin. Just kind of like how I did a few minutes ago, how I confessed how sometimes when people complain about things, I get a little defensive. That means I'm human. And that means that the church is human and that we're faulty, that we're broken. And we need to confess. And so the, the world needs to see that. The world needs to see that the church is a confessing, repentant people who is not perfect. So he doesn't skip over those bad parts, but rather... He includes them. But ultimately, he comes to verse 54 in chapter 7. And it comes just after he says, Now when Jesus, the righteous one, came, you killed him. He's bold. Remember, we preached on that a few weeks ago. He's bold and says, Guys, this story has a climax, and it climaxes when Jesus of Nazareth came. And you guys put him to death, and that's a problem. And in verse 54, it says they were enraged. It says they ground their teeth at him. They were so mad. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You see, the passion of the church is the story of the church 
But the passion also includes the costliness of it. When we talk about the passion of Jesus, we talk about his last days. Those days where he's going to the cross, where he's laying down his life for the people. We call that his passion. And the passion that you and I live with is the story that we're in that also comes with a great cost. We share the story, we serve the community, and if if necessary, we bear the brunt of the costliness of the message that we bear because it it presses in on people's comfort, it presses in on people's uh, natural instinct to just want to do things on their own. And yet Stephen here, whenever he confesses this, whenever he boldly proclaims this, heaven opens up and it says he sees Jesus standing there. You see, the passion is more than just excitement. It's a recognition that Jesus has been with you the whole time in your serving and in your sharing. The story brings with it the costliness of Jesus. The world, as I opened with, may love our serving. We could win a lot of good favor, maybe even church attenders by serving our communities really well. We could be really connected to our world if we just serve really well. But if we never proclaim the gospel, they're never going to hear the hope that is within us and the hope that is for them. And so the world may be offended by our story, just like these folks were. And they may get mad. And they may even try to come after us. That's why we hold firm to the truth that God has given to us in his word, no matter what it brings us. We serve with a posture of humility. We go with the passion of the story that comes, that comes with a cost. Sometimes it costs us see, uh, people in the pews. Sometimes it may cost us uh, other things. Sometimes it may even cost us our life. And ultimately, that's the case for Stephen. He does lose his life. He's the first martyr of the church. He's the first one who bears the ultimate witness by laying down his life for the church. But the church serves and proclaims at the same time. That's what the church is called to do. That's what an evangelical is. is a good news person who tangibly serves but proclaims spiritually the power of God. So let me just conclude with this. Um, I, I saw recently that in, in the city of Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, there's actually a restaurant called Dining in the Dark or a concept of eating called Dining in the Dark. I'm not sure what the name of the restaurant is. But the idea is you go into this restaurant and it's pitch black, dark. You can't see anything. You can't see your table. You can't see your food. You can't see the people you're eating with. It's dark. It's dining in the dark. It's Ho Chi Minh. It's it's an interesting concept. And so a number of questions immediately arise. And the very first one is, how do you get to your table? And do you know how they get people to their tables? They employ the blind to walk people to their tables. And then it's up to you to eat whatever they give you and trust. But the point here for us is they, they use the blind to bring them to their table. I just think it's a beautiful image of what the church can be. Of Again, the church is not perfect people. The church is to be a place for all people, even those with disabilities, those with, with ailments, those with shortcomings, kind of like the blind. But we can be used to walk people through the dark and sit them at the table so that they may be introduced 
to the one who says, if you, I'm going to knock at the door, and if you open the door, I'll sit down and eat with you. That's what the stained glass on the back wall is. I'll sit down and have a meal with you. That's Jesus. He desires to sit and have a meal with each of us. May we be those blind guides walking people to their seats, humbly in a posture of faith, passionately leading people to the truth. Let me close us in prayer before we sing. Heavenly Father, uh, would you make us a people of, of serving, a people of, of boldness? Lord, would you, would you weave these two themes together in our life? Each of us have a unique way of, of putting that together in our lives. We all have different contexts, different people we know, different places we go. But Lord, as we learn from Stephen and the early church and the, and the power of of the church that is organized well to meet the needs of our community. Lord, we just long to be that kind of church. We long to be that kind of people. We long to be that kind of, 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 of person individually. So Lord, would you fill us with hope that you can do that? Um, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? We are a servant people, and we serve you, the King, the one who laid down your life for us. May we follow hard after Jesus' example. In Christ's name we pray. We pray. Amen.